Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanillo with Sarah Eisen, David Faber at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer is the morning off. Futures bounce. Uh, Dow looks to open up 200 as Hong Kong withdraws that extradition bill that prompted months of protest. Tons of corporate news as well from Starbucks to WeWork, American Eagle to Alphabet. Europe's up about a percent. Bunn's selling off in our 10 years, still below 1.5. We get six Fed speakers today and a beige book. Our roadmap begins with Hong Kong, Brexit, and a slew of international trade data. Stocks set for a sharp rebound the open. Plus recession risks with global economic uncertainty rising. We will get those latest tea leaves from the Fed. That'll be later today. And an NFL blockbuster. The Dallas Cowboys agreeing to a monster contract extension with Ezekiel Elliott. Team owner Jerry Jones joins us here first on CNBC at Post 9. Investor sentiment getting a lift on news from across the Pacific. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam making it official. She has withdrawn that controversial extradition bill that sparked months of protests and impacted the economic climate. Some protest leaders say demonstrations will continue, though, unless other demands are met, including calls for greater democracy. Some of the protesters are asking for a complete review of police behavior. No indication she's going to give them that as well. I would say finally to this, right? I mean, they've been protesting now for 13 weeks, and this was one of the core issues that set it off. They've got other demands, but a lot of people in the market, the notes this morning, are looking at it as China blinked. And that's kind of the theme today. We're sort of walking off the edge. The British pound is higher as uh, Boris Johnson, the new prime minister's enemies, sort of go after him against the no-deal Brexit. And so that's providing a little relief to the market as well. But risk remain including the fact that there could be a new election there, uh, likely, and the fact that global manufacturing is slowing down. We're all still sort of reeling and reading the notes from yesterday's PMI manufacturing report here in the U.S. that showed it under 50. And, and what that tells, is it an indication that something worse is coming for the economy or just a slowdown in manufacturing, which was also confirmed in the trade numbers today? Yeah, although in China, uh, their own Kaishin market PMI, uh, highest since May, uh, that's making the headlines, of course, over there. There are a lot of people who predicted that the impact of the trade war would meet the U.S. with a delay. And if you look at the two lines, uh, that is essentially what's happened in terms of survey data. We'll see how the hard data comes in. But certainly uh, the ISM number, uh, first contraction in three years, as Sarah said, uh, had gotten people's attention yesterday. New orders, particularly weak, 47.2. New export orders, 43.3. Worst since the recession. And then, David, we got some new data today on the trade deficit. I mean, this is what happens when you start a trade war. Uh, you do see the trade gap decreasing, 2.7% for the overall gap. Our imports fell, and our imports from China were down 2% in July from June. Exports were down 2.7%. That's your biggest trading partner. That's what happens when you put up walls like tariffs. Right. Well, I think Canada's our biggest trading partner, right? Right. But one of our largest. One, and we do. It's funny. We, it's always worth remembering. We talk about $300 billion in additional tariffs, but that number is actually coming down, perhaps not as quickly as President Trump would like, although he does seem to also like the revenue that's coming into the Treasury from those tariffs slash taxes. And again, you get a tale of two economies in these, in these numbers because our overall imports in the U.S. fell. But there was a much bigger decline in imports of capital goods, computers, machinery, and that sort of thing. And actually, the imports for the consumer goods actually rose, which speaks to the strength of the U.S. consumer, which continues to be sort of this dichotomy in the market and the, in, the, in the economy. Obviously, Hong Kong is where a lot of the news is happening this morning. Let's get to NBC's Chris Livesay in Hong Kong with more on these developments that we got overnight surrounding that extradition bill. Chris? 
Yes, good morning. A major shift for Carrie Lam, the embattled leader of Hong Kong, who just a short moment ago announced that she would withdraw this extremely controversial extradition bill that's that sparked this protest movement already three months ago that's driven hundreds of thousands, sometimes more than a million protesters out to the streets because they've been terrified that this would give China license to pluck them and, and take suspects uh, of crimes to the mainland for trial, where the judicial system is much more opaque. However, it's really too soon to tell exactly what impact this is going to have on the protest movement overall. You know, investors who may be thinking that this is the time to see the end of this protest movement need to keep in mind that uh, they've got other demands. They want Carrie Lam to resign. They want an amnesty for the more than 1,000 protesters who have been arrested over the past three months. They want an independent investigation into alleged police brutality. So there's still a lot of factors floating around here. And when you go to the chat rooms that these protesters use to organize, you know, it's a largely leaderless movement. So they kind of cast their vote anytime a major decision needs to be made. And right now, the consensus among these chat rooms is this is not enough. It's all or nothing. We want all of our demands or we're going to keep turning out to the streets. This is too little, too late. Back to you guys. Chris, thank you very much. Reporting from Hong Kong, joining us now with a closer look at how all of this impacts the markets. Fidelity, Invest Fidelity Investments Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, and Advisor Investments Chief Investment Officer, Jim Lowell. So, Urian, I mean, the characterization of the global hotspot sort of cooling off a little bit today and maybe some better data coming from the likes of China, as Carl mentioned. How, how much is this good for in the markets? Yeah. Well, you know, the markets are caught in, in a cross current, right? If you take a look at the markets from a glass half full perspective, you could argue, you know, with all these negative headlines, trade, global slowdown, everything, um, the market's only a few percent below its highs. And all you need at that point is for something to go right and the market could rocket to new highs. So that's kind of the optimist view. Uh, you know, the, the, the glass half empty is that, you know, the market's in denial, kind of like where it was in October of 07, where the market kept going up uh, despite all these negative uh, trends going around us. My sense is it's somewhere in between. You know, the Fed really needs to step up here and kind of feed the market, if you will, with what the market needs, which is more liquidity, lower rates. Uh, and obviously, it's, it's likely to, to deliver on that in September. Uh, but, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the PMI is below 50 um, and, um, and, you know, and the yield curve is inverted. So the Fed needs to act here and, and step up. And I think as long as the Fed does that and we see any kind of moderate improvement in some of the fundamentals, I think the market stays in decent shape. But for now, you know, qu third quarter earnings season is coming up in about a month. And uh, we're probably going to see a few more downgrades before uh, before earnings season starts. So at this point, I don't think the market is going to be able to get out of its sort of late market, late cycle uh, purgatory, if you will. It's kind of a debate on the Fed, Jim. I mean, what Urian just characterized, he said the market needs a rate cut. The yield curve is inverted. The market is craving more liquidity. That's that's the Bullard view versus the Rosengren view, which is the economy looks just fine. Why do we have to give the market everything at once? Jim, where do you fall? I fall in the latter camp. I don't think the Fed needed to cut rates uh, when they did. I don't think the fundamentals uh, would drive them there yet. I think uh, our Fed may be tipping a little bit more towards trying to be uh, proactive rather than reactive. I think that's dangerous. They need to remain data dependent. Urian mentioned that this market reminds him of 07, or this economy does. I think it's more reminiscent of 1999. The divergence between large and small cap performance, between growth and value stocks, uh, between the uh, international markets and U.S. is about as wide as I think it has been since then. And back then, don't forget, as we went into a fairly mild recession, what we saw was the large cap market sell off dramatically and what is currently underloved and overlooked, small cap value names, uh, actually came to the fore and delivered positive returns. So I think investors need to definitely make sure that their income needs are being met, their investment goals are well aligned, but their, their portfolios aren't chasing this uh, relentless momentum into large cap growth stocks. There are better values to be had and they will serve you better when this market does, in fact, take a downturn. You, you mentioned income. Both utilities and real estate sectors in the S&P closed at record highs 
yesterday. Is that still the place to go despite those kind of valuations, Jim? In a well-diversified portfolio, they certainly can play a role, but you need to be very selective. Uh, we certainly think uh, short-term bonds, cash. Uh, we know that some investors are reaching out to gold. We don't view gold as an investment, really more it's a tactical trading opportunity. But uh, we think the best investment you can make in gold is to buy it and put it around the neck of someone you love. In terms of uh, the overall marketplace, we think that this is a time where active management comes to the fore. Uh, we definitely think that just buying whole markets in terms of index funds is a risk mistake that we don't want our clients or any investor to make. Arian, what what is your strategy here for navigating through this choppy market? Um, well, as Jim mentioned, you know, a diversified portfolio remains paramount. And if you just take a very simple 60-40 portfolio, 60% S&P 500, 40% Barclays uh, U.S. Ag, um, and over the past couple of years since the S&P made its initial uh, valuation peak in January of 2018, that simple 60-40 portfolio delivered all the upside of the S&P, but only half the downside. And so to me, uh, a 60-40 or some variation thereof remains a fairly bulletproof strategy uh, because um, if things get better, the S&P or the stock side of the portfolio will, will deliver and if they don't, the bond side will deliver. And so that's been a very winning strategy. And um, I do think that a combination of some of the bond proxies or stocks that have quality and dividends uh, combined with maybe some of the secular growers um, uh, w will continue to be a good sort of barbell strategy. And, you know, as, as downtrodden as EM is, especially with all the trade tensions, um, EM, I think, it looks interesting here just from a contrarian point of view and that if the Fed does um, ease more, which I do think is likely, um, that'll put some, uh, that'll take some of the pressure off of the U.S. dollar uh, and that will allow the dollar to maybe weaken a bit and yeah. that will bring EMs uh, to life as well. So that would be my, my recommendation. Though it didn't happen the last time the Fed cut. All right, Yuri, Yurian, thank you very much. Jim Lowell, good to see you as well. Getting some breaking news this morning involving Google's YouTube business. Our Elon Mui is in Washington, D.C. with details. Good morning, Elon. Good morning, guys. Well, Google will be paying regulators $170 million to settle accusations that YouTube repeatedly violated the law that protects the privacy of children online. Now, under this agreement, Google will pay $136 million to the FTC and $34 million to the New York State Attorney General's office. In addition, YouTube must set up a system for content creators to designate their videos as designed for kids. The FTC said this is the first time any platform has been required to do that, and it will conduct sweeps of YouTube in order to ensure compliance. Now, the law does ban sites from tracking kids and then targeting them with behavioral advertising without the explicit consent of their parents. In the FTC's complaint, they said that Hasbro and Mattel were some of the chief offenders on YouTube's platform. In a statement, FTC Chairman Joseph Simon said that the agreement will force YouTube to change its business model and that Quote, there's no excuse for YouTube's violations of the law. However, the two Democratic commissioners at the FTC have dissented from this agreement. They voted against it. They said the dollar amount was too low. It should have been in the billions, not the millions. That it doesn't go far enough in changing YouTube's business practices. And that there's no good way for the FTC to ensure that Google is indeed complying with the law. Still, guys, the FTC did note that this $170 million penalty against Google is the largest it has ever collected under this privacy law. Back to you. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, Elon, Google faces so many different investigations. You know, you've got an antitrust probe from a lot of state AGs. Not clear how many, and it may be unveiled fairly soon. You got the Senate holding the subcommittee hearings on the 24th, examining concerns related to acquisitions of nascent digital competitors. Uh, it goes on and on. The, uh, the Irish government is 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 uh, examining whether or not they fed personal data to advertisers. Um, it's sort of not going to end for this company anytime soon in terms of a the investigations and perhaps the fines that follow. That's right. I mean, this is really happening on a number of fronts across a number of issues involving Google. I think it was also interesting that in her dissent, uh, Democratic Commissioner 
Slaughter said that she hopes that state AGs will continue to fight on this particular issue, children's privacy, calling on the state AGs to perhaps file their own complaints, launch their own investigations into Google over this issue, and perhaps receive an even bigger fine. There is widespread concern amongst consumer advocates that this fine basically amounts to a slap on the wrist for YouTube and for Google, considering the amount of uh, advertising revenue that kids content does bring in. It's one of the most popular sites on the web for kids. Um, does the punishment match the crime in this case? Um, that is going to be hotly debated, but at least now we know what the structure of the settlement actually is. All right, we'll look for some details later this morning, Elon. Thank you uh, for helping us break that, Elon Nui in Washington. When we come back, we'll talk the business of football with Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones. He's here at Post 9 as his team agrees to that reported $90 million contract extension for star running back Ezekiel Elliott. He'll be the highest paid RB in the league. Take another look at the pre-market average move for the Dow. The last 10 sessions, 239 points. And that's much like what we'll get at the Open. Well, we're back in a minute. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Looks like we'll get some relief for stocks ahead of the open. What about bonds? Let's head over to the bond pits. Rick Santelli at the CME Group in Chicago. Rick. Good morning, sir. If you look at a two-day of 10s, you can see we've moved up a bit. But consider this. First of all, yesterday we settled at 146. That was a fresh uh, low-yield close going back to the summer of 2016, a little over three years. And the other key issue is the next chart. This is a two-day of boons. Even though we're up three basis points from that new low close for the cycle, boons are up five basis points from their minus 72 low close. Uh, they settled around minus 70. They're up five basis points. They did have PMIs improve, and I think that's part of it. But it's very interesting to see some buoyancy in the Eurozone rates, especially with the notion that on September 12th, we are promised, at least the whisper promise is, from Mario Draghi, that he's going big. And of course, this comes before he turns over the reins to Christine Lagarde, which in many respects brings more politics into the central banking situation in Europe between the countries that are involved in that group in the EU and, of course, Brussels. Tens minus twos, a spread that has gotten more attention in the last couple of months, maybe than it should, but that'll be left to the future to write the history on whether that becomes a sentinel signal or not. But it is worth noting that we have seen some steepening. Here's a one-week chart of tens to twos, and you can see we're flirting with three basis points at this point. Uh, some of the worst levels were down minus five, minus six intraday. Finally, the dollar index. Here we sit around 98.60. We need to be aware that before this recent move, the high going back to May of 2017 was right around 98 and a half. So even though today's a pretty big give back, a third of a cent at this point, it is still holding what was, other than last week, the highs going back almost two plus years. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Rick Santelli, uh, New York Fed President John Williams speaking in New York on a day where we're going to get a ton of Fed speak. Steve Leisman's watching that. Steve? Yeah, Carl, thanks very much. Uh, John Williams, New York Fed President, saying in New York City, 
that he, uh, he is prepared to, quote, act as appropriate. There's that phrase again, to support uh, the growth of the economy, job growth, and inflation coming in at the, at the uh, Fed's goal of 2%. You know, he says the economy's in a favorable place, talking about this dilemma that the Fed has, but he's concerned about risks and uncertainty in the economy. Among those risks, global growth. Trade uncertainty, Brexit, Hong Kong, Argentina, debt crisis, he lists all of them. He says the economy's momentum, by the way, is already somewhat less robust than we thought because of the downgrade to GDP and to the downgrade of the level of employment by 500,000. Uh, low inflation, he says, repeating something he said before, is the problem of this era, era. The number one goal is to keep the expansion on track, but he says they must maintain a, dependent, a, a data-dependent Approach, Carl, we've had this before. Everybody agrees the economic data, not too bad. However, all the risks out there and where these Fed guys differ is in what they want to do about it. Uh, Bullard yesterday talked about cutting 50. Rosengren yesterday from Boston talked about holding the line. Williams, kind of in the middle, but seems maybe more inclined to also cut. And just so you know, for your information there, we've got a 100% chance of a September cut but a 14% chance by one measure and a 7% chance by another of a 50 basis point cut. So that still seems to be a very minority uh, uh, stance that uh, is out there in the market, Carl. Uh, Steve, it's not just uh, Rosengren Bullard. It's not just uh, Williams now, but this Dudley op-ed doubling down on his uh, entreaty to the Fed to not enable the, the president's trade tariffs. Yeah, uh, he, it, it, that's out there, too. And I think the Fed is... Uh, I guess cringing is probably a pretty good word. They don't really want to be in this political fight. You know, it's funny, Carl, is that if the Fed wanted to say something politically, they might have said it. Uh, instead, what they did is come out with a very strong statement, kind of disavowing Dudley when it first happened. Uh, so it, it's, it's pretty interesting that that's, that's going on. You do not hear the Fed guys saying that except to say, look, this is a very bad card that we've been dealt that we're going to deal with with the question being they deal with it preemptively. In other words, count on the trade war to go on and to cut preemptively for the potential of impact on the economy. Or do they wait until those impacts show up? We haven't heard a whole lot about how yesterday's ISM manufacturing decline uh, is affecting their thinking. But I think it has to be working in there. The idea that you have the first decline in three years uh, and that the export numbers really fell through the floor. I don't know if you saw this, because I guess we talked about them yesterday. The lowest uh, the export uh, index in the ISM since the financial crisis, which is a, a number and a record you do not want to aspire to. Yeah. Uh, we're glad we have you with us, uh, Steve, to make sense of it all, to especially days like today. Uh, Steve Leisman, we'll see you sure. in a bit. When we come back, uh, stay tuned for our interview with Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones here at Post 9 to discuss the business of football, this extension for Ezekiel and the NFL's 100th season. Take another look at the pre-market as futures are up on this Hong Kong withdrawal of the extradition bill. We're back in a minute. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're watching CNBC Squawk on the Street, live from the financial capital of the world. The opening bell in three and a half minutes. Man, there's a lot to uh, cover today. We've talked about Hong Kong, Boris Johnson and uh, the UK, obviously the China data, the ISM. The Dorian recovery continues as uh, at least five deaths as we're looking at what some are calling a humanitarian crisis in the Bahamas today. And then in terms of corporate news, uh, Starbucks at this Goldman conference guiding 2020 uh, EPS 
quote, below the ongoing growth model of 10 percent plus. Uh, they're not going to give us official guidance until October 30th, but you have to believe, David, this reflects at least um, some pairing of expectations in China. We'll, we'll see. That's the way it's being taken by the market. Again, they are at a conference this morning, as you said, Carl, and uh, they did come in not with their official guidance, but with a number at least that, to your point, is below what has typically been promised by the company. Uh, initially, the sell-off was actually more. So we'll see how the stock uh, performs once we uh, get the open. But uh, when it was met, it was met with uh, some selling prior, of course, to the open, so the volume not that large. Maybe we should also mention that the stock is up 80% in the last 12 months. It's been a a moonshot, really, so far this year, delivering higher same-store sales numbers under Kevin Johnson. Largely, it's been a story of exceeding expectations, right? Yeah, the last quarter was was very well received, uh, given the numbers they put up in terms of same, as you point out, Sarah, uh, comp store sales and growth in China as well, which there had been some fear about. Uh, retailers in focus got a number of uh, results. American Eagle, uh, 39 cents, beats 32. Comps a little disappointing up two. We were looking for up three. Uh, but they do see the current quarter below estimates, uh, 47 to 49. Streets at 53. And that stock's uh, going to get hit at the open as well. Yeah, the, uh, Jay Schottenstein, the CEO in the release, blamed a delayed back-to-school season. Overall, American Eagle has also been one of the stronger retail per- performers, at least if you look at the comps, did you see the numbers for Aerie? This is their sort of lingerie, more uh, friendly to today's consumer kind of uh, bras and underwear, comping 16%. So that still continues to be the story of strength, even though the overall comps at 2% were less than expected and the stock is coming off on uh, those missed expectations. What are you watching? I think I think the defensive sectors at the open are going to be the biggest thing to watch because that was what led the charge yesterday. It was a down day. We'll see if we get more of a cyclical focus. That's that's who was beat up in August, and that's who the bulls are looking to for confirmation. The transports, for instance, which underperformed yesterday. The Russell, which had been sort of a serial underperformer in August, to see whether there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel to, to the volatility that we saw in August and the, what, 200-plus per- point moves that we've seen every single day in the Dow <laughs> over the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know what's going to surprise to the upside is Michaels, uh, another retailer, uh, which beats by a nickel uh, at 19, revenue also ahead. Uh, expectations for comps were a drop of one. They managed to eke out three-tenths, and with that, Michaels is going to open up uh, better than 20 percent. Uh, just to give you a sense of how dampened expectations have been for retailers with at least some exposure to China. Let's get the opening bell here. The S&P 500 at the CNBC Real-Time Exchange at the big board. It's Comstock Resources celebrating its acquisition of Puppy Park Energy. And you see Dallas Cowboys owner there, Jerry Jones. We'll talk to him in a minute. At the NASDAQ Investment Fund, Sutter Rock Capital. So we'll keep an eye on some of the corporate stories we've covered so far. Also watch Tesla today. Porsche is out with what some are dubbing the Tesla killer. It's called the Taycan, uh, $90,000, four-door sedan. Uh, The report suggests that it's going to be profitable at launch and that they have about 30,000 deposits so far. I think zero to 62 in less than three seconds. Uh, We'll see how much this does uh, to get Volkswagen's hopes of becoming the largest EV seller in the world. I mean, just looking at the opening gate here, we've got every sector in the S&P 500 higher. So it's one of those continued days where I remember Mike Santoli last week did a chart about how everything is moving in unison, in lockstep. You've got all of them higher today. Uh, and, you know, we've seen this pattern, all lower, all higher, which means that macro news is really dominating. You mentioned Hong Kong. You mentioned the sort of Fed speak in the air. And I think after that ISM number, especially what we saw in the bond market, guys, which was steepening of the yield curve on hopes that the Fed was going to be pushed in to more stimulus. Neil Dutta, for instance, put out a research note at Renaissance Macro saying they should cut 50 basis points. The market's not expecting it. Let them surprise the market. And now they've got a lot more ammunition to do so. We've got the lower manufacturing numbers. Inflation's barely budging. And global slowdown story is still there. I don't know. Financial conditions, I mean, have they gotten that tight? It's a good we're, debate. we're a few points from all-time highs in the markets. Uh, it's a big week for corporate debt issuance and spreads are not sending the alarm signal, some argue, that the yield curve has. We had a big deal out of Disney in multi- many parts. Deer, I think Apple comes this week as well. 
Uh, if you were truly seeing recessionary indicators, wouldn't see you in the see market. corporate spreads respond? That's, that's the counter-argument. Apple has been particularly good through the years at uh, timing the market. I can remember previous lows where they issued enormous amounts of, uh, of debt. Of course, they don't really need to issue very much debt given the cash, net cash position at the company is still enormous, but they are returning a, a good amount of cash to shareholders, as we know. Uh, through buybacks that continue as well. But it is interesting to see their treasurer, whoever it is, have a good feel for, uh, for, uh, for the debt markets in terms of getting the paper out there at the right time. Every Dow member is higher. Guys, just wanted to quickly check on Walmart and Kroger adjusting their gun policies in the wake of the mass shootings that we have seen. Um, Kroger following Walmart saying, asking its customers not to have weapons, basically, in the store uh, to carry weapons. And Walmart actually taking it a step further. Kroger had already done this last year, stopping ammunition cells for assault-style rifles and handguns. Obviously, two deadly shootings at its stores in the last month have prompted some action here. Uh, Kroger's trading up a percent. Walmart, also, I mean, this news was out yesterday, but people are still continuing, especially for Walmart, who says that the move will reduce its market share of ammunition to about 6 to 9 percent, down from 20 percent currently. There's the Kroger statement asking customers to no longer openly carry firearms into our stores other than authorized law enforcement officers. We're also joining those encouraging our elected officials to pass laws that will strengthen background checks and remove weapons from those who have been found to pose a risk to violence. So companies are stepping it up. It's very interesting. It's an interesting time to, to see sort of companies making choices in terms of what they think will best serve their stakeholders, uh, which is a word I think we're going to hear more often. Uh, McMillan also saying there were, unfortunately, a lot of people walking in to test the open carry laws, and that, of course, was concerning to some customers at Walmart when they made the decision to uh, to ask people to refrain from doing so, Sarah. I mean, it's a delicate it's a delicate balance. I think it's why we've seen Walmart act tentatively on this issue. They've taken steps before, yep. uh, but clearly this is going to be seen as, as one of the bigger ones. Um, I want to get to a favor report, but I did want to mention Tyson Foods also. Lower, it's down yeah. lower, not too much, but they did lower... They lowered guidance, their guidance. Yeah. They lowered their guidance range, citing what they called their short-term challenges. Kind of one-time issues, like I don't know, commodities derivatives trading, and, and then that sort of thing, uh, coming coming out yesterday after the bell. But they didn't really say anything long-term about demand, at least for me. No, and they, the they stock. They actually said it's going well. Take a look at the stock. You can see it's been a very, very strong performer. Um, 70% this year. Yeah. Getting to a favor report this morning. One name that has not been a stronger performer, perhaps as many had anticipated. It's a deal that was announced a little over a month ago. I wasn't here, actually, to cover it at the time. It was an important one for Pfizer and Mylan, of course, I'm talking about that. Uh, transaction, somewhat complex, that combined uh, the um, off-patent branded and generic established medicines business called Upjohn. Remember the old Upjohn at Pfizer? With Mylan, it's a reverse Mars Trust, so uh, the effect of it would be Mylan shareholders would own about 43% of the combined company, Pfizer shareholders 57%. It's not going to be done for some time. I think they're talking about July of, of next year. But Pfizer shareholders know what happened there. The stock declined rather dramatically, uh, in fact, uh, since that deal was announced. Why? Well, it's a low multiple business exiting what is a higher multiple, so it didn't have that effect sort of of... of, of of creating value in the sense of your 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 uh, moving out a lower multiple business. Now, the the hope, of course, is though that the combination itself will set both Pfizer's business and Mylan's business on a new course. And the reason I'm mentioning it this morning is because Mylan is now going to become more aggressive in terms of communicating the benefits that they see from the deal that they feel perhaps in this first month of trading since it was announced have been missed by their investor base. And that is being led by its executive chairman, Robert Corey, a man who really built Mylan over the last 17 or so years uh, as well, in terms of starting to address shareholders about what they feel are some of the perhaps things that are being misinterpreted uh, by the market. What are they going to be pushing? Well, the idea of the combination itself is really a new company for a new age. 
uh, and in fact is not necessarily a generic competitor, for example, has only 25% of its overall sales in the U.S., and of that, only 15% is actually in the generics market. Worldwide sales, and in China, they're talking about having the scale they really need there to compete as well, given the combination of the two businesses. They assumed an eight multiple going in, at least that's how they negotiated the transaction, got the exchange ratio, or got the the, uh, the 53-40, uh, excuse me, 43-57 split. Well, it's not trading anywhere near that, and that seems to be something of a frustration at this point. These are early days, of course. You've got to go about creating a shareholder base for the new company. But it is worth noting uh, that at the present time, you're talking about Milan trading at about 6, 6.4 or so uh, times uh, 2020 estimated EBITDA based on its total enterprise value versus even the likes of a Teva. That is a debilitated company with an enormous debt load, still trading at a higher multiple, uh, or Sun, or Perigo, or Hikma, uh, any number of them. And so the idea here is, hey, let's try and at least explain to investors why this multiple is, in our opinion, depressed. What was most interesting, perhaps, about it is, of course, the idea that they're moving from the Netherlands. Remember, the shadow of Mr. Corey's resistance to Teva's potential takeover of Milan a number of years ago continues to hang uh, over the stock price and perhaps over his own reputation. That and a number of other things. Uh, but perhaps it's no longer deserved. We'll see. They are now talking about shareholders and being a shareholder-focused company, given that they are now reincorporating with new directors in Delaware, new governance, New, C, uh, new CEO, of course, Pfizer's uh, gentleman coming over to do that. Um, but worth noting, Milan shares up a little bit this morning as they sort of try to explain the story. We'll have a lot more on it. Perhaps even one day we'll have Mr. Corey join us. Carl, over to you. All right. <laughs> David, thanks. Let's get to Seema Momadi. Seema, what's moving this morning. Hey, Seema. Good morning, Carl. Yeah, that's right. The U.S. market's on track to erase yesterday's losses in response to some pretty good global data and that news that the extradition bill in Hong Kong will be withdrawn. Uh, the Dow leaders at this moment, we're looking at Coke, Pfizer, United Tech, and Goldman Sachs. All these names traded lower yesterday and are higher, with the exception of Pfizer, down about a half a percent. Take a look at the Hang Seng. That's the Hong, Stong, Hong Kong stock market. Back in positive territory for the year, but still down about 8% from its June high. And we're even looking at the dollar weaker right now, which is helping oil move to the upside. Let's get to that data, though. August PMIs from around the world have come in relatively better than expected, with the exception of the U.K. and even the Hong Kong. The average manufacturing PMI reading rose 0.2 points. Now, Italy, France, Germany, Spain, and the Eurozone as a whole beating and improving versus July, but they're coming off a very low base. China services also improved. So that's the story overseas. Specific earnings names to watch today. Arts and Crafts store operator Michaels beating estimates by five cents on its bottom line. A jump in comp sales, and we're looking at shares up 20%. Keep in mind, its market cap still below $1 billion. We're also keeping a close eye on shares of Box, hedge fund Starbucks, Board value disclosing a 7.5% stake in the cloud service provider, calling shares undervalued. You can see shares of Box down 35% in the past one year. Carl, sending it back to you. Seema, thank you. When we come back, Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones is going to join us here at Post 9, an interview you do not want to miss given the news about Ezekiel Elliott today. Dow Futures suggested a slightly bigger open, but we're up almost 200 points. We're back in a moment. The NFL's 100th season set to kick off in just one day, and who better to talk about that than NFL Hall of Famer, Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, who's with us here at Post 9 after ringing the opening bell with Comstock Resources here this morning at the NYSC. Jerry, thank you for coming by. It's great to see you. Well, it's great to be here on the floor of uh, the stock exchange. I feel like I'm... Uh, having breakfast with George Washington and right down the, right down the street from many of the yep. great names yes. of our history. Yeah. We were just talking off camera. Uh, today's a day with news with your two loves, which is football and exploration and production. Let, let's first do Covey Park and what Comstock's buying here. What's well, the story? Uh, first of all, uh, the way I bought the Cowboys was my uh, career and the money that I've earned from being involved in oil and gas exploration, particularly gas. And uh, 
um, Comstock has one of the best positions of leases relative to the cheapest place, I would say, in the world to get gas to the market. I'm a big believer in what natural gas is. And I've always believed that the time to get involved is when things are low. That's the way I bought the Cowboys. The Cowboys were losing a million a month. And I bought 15% of the Cowboys from the FDIC. A lot of people don't realize that. Well, before that, I'd gone in the oil and gas business when it was low. And uh, geologists were going to work selling shoes. And so I've always been a little contrarian in my uh, approach to things. So this is the time to do it in the natural gas business, and I've spent uh, roughly a billion and a half dollars over the last uh, probably 36 months uh, investing in oil and gas. What do you think it's going to take to turn sentiment around on exploration and production? Well, I want to, through Comstock, uh, I would say look at what we've been doing, look at what I've been doing. Uh, I understand some frustration with investors. That's not what's been happening to me. I've taken millions of dollars and invested it since, uh, since 2017. And I've turned that into two and three times my money. And we're doing the same thing with Comstock. And uh, they've done a great job with Covey Park and acquiring a lot of leases. These leases are right in the pathway to the great markets of the Gulf as far as natural gas is concerned. And so that uh, whether it's a ball team or whether it's a piece of land in North Dallas, in this particular case, natural gas, that gets my attention. We want to make it clear, you've put a lot of money in here. I mean, what, a billion, over a billion at this point? I have. Or? As far as the over the last 40 months, I've invested over a billion and a half uh, in uh, gas, gas prospects, uh, produ drilling, producing wells, and right. uh, am continuing that kind of aggressiveness. Uh, in my mind, this is the time to do it. Now, it's very important that you keep the cash, you keep up with the drilling, or you keep up with but the But how much of it is dependent on the price of the actual commodity starting to trend up, or is this really, yes. if, even if we stay where we are, you believe that any you can Any commodity, any commodity has market sensitivity. On the other hand, natural gas for energy is our cleanest fuel. Plus, we have opened up, since uh, 2016, we have opened up the markets of the world to natural gas. That's why I'm here. Uh, someone asked me, are you looking at the waiver wire so that we can uh, make sure we've got our roster put together? Yeah, and at the same time, I'm looking out the other corner of my eye at a good place to drill a well. <laughs> Speaking of rosters, um, what does is, what is signing Zeke mean? What does this extension mean for the team, for the season? for getting past the division, all of that? Well, I just turned my pockets out upstairs. <laughs> it means I'm $100 million lighter as of this morning. But seriously, uh, Zeke has been arguably our best player. I'm not trying to be unfair to anybody else, but he's an incremental part to our success. Uh, we're glad to get him booked in. We're glad to have him uh, on the team. He plays a position that has some, uh, uh, some pretty interesting dynamics to it because uh, running backs are short-lived, although we had what I consider to be one of the top five greatest ones in Emmett Smith. And Emmett ran the ball for 13 years, so you don't have to have a four- or five-year career to be a running back. On the other hand, Zeke allows us to create such problems for the defense that then we can open it up to our passing, open it up for Dak Prescott. Of course, we've got to have some guys on defense to get those guys the ball. That's what this is all about. Can, can we say that Zeke is better than Emmett ever was? Oh, I, no, I don't want to say that. Zeke wouldn't want me to say that. Uh, but I will say this. They both have a line heart. And believe it or not, Bill Parcells used to give lectures on just how line-hearted a running back has to be. They're continually taking the pounding. They continually have to gather it up and go some more. Who could forget against the New York Giants? Emmitt Smith running with a knockdown shoulder to win that game when we had to win it to go to the playoffs that ultimately led us to a Super Bowl. Uh, Zeke has a big heart. Now he's got a thick pocketbook, too. Yeah, I mean, this is the first nine-figure contract for a running back. Yeah. And, what do you uh, say to those who 
tell well, you you're overpaying. Well, first of all, uh, uh, I, I would say that anybody, when you're talking about that kind of money, we're all overpaid, if you really wanted to look at it that way. For what he has done, how he's worked, how he's utilized his skills, uh, then he's in the marketplace of where we are in pro sports and pro football. Jerry, what do you think it's going to take to get a streaming NFL deal for games that are tentpole games, like a Sunday night on YouTube, Amazon, something beyond what we've seen already so far? Oh, I think that uh, we're in such a world of uh, change, if you will, on how we present our games. Uh, You know, when I first got involved in the NFL, content to me was what's in a popcorn box. It was popcorn. The word content, what is that? Well, content, as it turns out, was about what goes on that television. You know, the NFL's interest culminates in the fourth quarter of the year. No other sport has its hot time. That's Christmas and Thanksgiving. That's when you want those decision makers in front of that TV set. And then we have natural breaks. They're called huddles, they're called stoppages. They're not intrusive so that we can put many messages up there at the same time. And then more important than anything, the NFL, and I'm talking about content, whether it's on or off the field, in season or out, there's a soap opera going on every day. It's a gift to television because it's constantly on the forefront of attention and interest. And those contracts, Um, of course, have greatly added to the value of your franchise and to the value overall of the NFL. I'm curious how you view the next one coming up. I think CBS is a couple of years away. Do you think there's going to be a lot of competition from players we haven't typically seen in terms of trying to secure those rights? Well, I think this, that uh, we have a history of a collective bargained agreement. That means the players and the clubs agree on how much dollars, what percentage of dollars are going to be there. For almost the last 10 weeks, about every Monday or Tuesday, I've been in uh, Chicago or parts nearby negotiating with the Players Association about our future labor agreement. We all know it would be better to get something done now than two years from now when you could possibly have work stoppages because this would allow us to have a great uh, platform of continuity, an agreement for years, that we can go to the networks and address this streaming, address what our game is going to look like on that too. Uh, That's why we're doing it. That's why the players are doing it. Uh, We're all working hard to get a deal done. Still, NFL ratings have been a little soft in recent seasons. I mean, do you think that you can grow broadcast television ratings in the U.S., or are we at peak football? That's such a misnomer that our ratings are soft. Uh, They're the hardest thing there is in all of television viewing. In general, all television has depreciated the viewership. It has, if you will, it has gone to those handheld, it's gone to other areas. And, of course, the NFL wants to be a very substantive part of the alternatives to the uh, traditional television screen. But on the other hand, a funny thing happened. The more the percentage of fans or the percentage of viewers watch all programming, the more valuable the NFL has gotten because we are where you can get the guaranteed highest percentage of the decision makers in this country in front of the set. So uh, just the opposite. Uh, The uh, idea of where we are with our viewership is so much stronger than when I got in the NFL in 1989 or or when Fox came in in the early 90s. Uh, We're really in a very strong position in time. Do you think we're past the kneeling controversy, and would you have done anything differently looking back? Well, I think that uh, we all recognize uh, the social issues. I would have never dreamed when I got involved with the Cowboys that I would be dressing bullying or I would be dressing these social issues. But then I stop and think about it. If we're going to get up and ask everybody to look at us, When you turn away, wait, wait, get back over here. Look at us. If we're going to ask this country to look at us, then along with that comes the responsibility when we get it done, we have all those eyeballs, 
when the country says, help us out a little bit on social issues. Use those platforms to help us as a society. So I have a, a, a different view, let's say, than I had uh, 20, 30 years ago when I first got involved. Where I think that we are is that we are evolving in our understanding. We have always, the Cowboys are where we are. Everybody knows where we stand. But on the other hand, what I want to be sure that everybody understands is how interested we are in uh, helping that first responder be safe. How interested we are when uh, we have uh, unjust, if you will, uh, uh, unjust circumstances that, uh, that really are unfortunate. We want to have the NFL be a part of making sure that we're doing everything we can to help those areas. Now, you can't arm wave. Uh, if you could uh, solve all these problems, you'd be God. You can't do that, but what you can do is try. We have a lot of visibility. We have huge numbers of fans. We want to use all of that to help these social issues where we can. There are also health issues. Uh, Jerry, Andrew Luck retired last week at 29. He cited pain and injury. How worried are you that people start walking away because of health concerns? I just want to be sure that we uh, talk about the whole story. Uh, I had a, a long a career through college. I played for five years in college. And uh, so that very aware of the kinds of health issues that after you've done that, then when you're 77, which I am, how you feel, how you walk, how you think. Uh, one of the most concussed players that have ever put on a helmet in the NFL is Roger Staubach. He's my age. Together, we are building one of the greatest real estate developments right now you can have. My point is, there are a lot of examples where those lives that played this game have actually, as they have gotten older and older and older, there are a lot of examples of people who didn't play the game, men and women, who uh, have limitations. Just the balanced story that are out here. The facts are that as far as health is concerned, NFL football players are the healthiest group on the planet. NFL football players. We're talking cardio. We're talking their entire condition. Makes sense. They have kept themselves in competitive condition all that time. Sir. But as a group, the healthiest group on the planet. Jerry, please come back next time. Congratulations. Thanks, Stocks, guys. Stocks uh, responded to some of your comments Thanks, as well. Thanks, guys. Well, let's, uh, let's uh, ring the bell and buy some. <laughs> Jerry Jones you, here at Post 9. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.